Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Dina Drewis, John Fine, Jeffrey Leppendorf, Fiona McRae, Kevin Nwine, and Nathan Rostron. You will now hear Jeffrey Leppendorf, Executive Director of the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses, provide introductions. So raise your hands. Who here sometimes feels like a paper bag blowing through the wind? You're all here for Katy Perry Poetics, right? No, that's not true at all. Uh, welcome to New Trends in Publishing, a panel we do every year. We being no longer the council, but now the community of literary magazines and presses, I'm Jeffrey Leppendorf, the executive director of CLMP. Uh, very quickly, we've been around since 1967, serving small publishers of literature, lit mags, small presses, chapbook zines, online, you name it. All the folks making the connections between literary writers and literary readers. It's always a lot of fun to do this panel. Um, we invite different folks on, and we hear about some new things happening. Um, I think as we hear, though, when we say, you know, we say new trends, but it really should just say trends, because particularly these days, some, um, some of the newest things are also old things come back to grace us. So we'll hear about that as well. Let's meet our panel. I'm not going to read bios, because I refuse to do that. I'm going to ask every panel member, we'll just start with Nathan, to self-introduce, and the rule is... Tell us who you are, and uh, very quickly what you do in no more than two breaths. Two breaths. Yes. Nathan. I'm Nathan Rostron, Director of Marketing at Restless Books, which is a new indie publisher of international literature based in Brooklyn. Thank you. We're going to hear from John Fine. And I shall say that John Fine is uh, CLMP's newest board member. Uh, which it, it's really an honor. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for coming out. My name is John Fine. Um, up until a couple of months ago, I was head of author and publishing relations for Amazon, and in that role, sort of working on all kinds of communication, giving grants, uh, helping support the literary uh, and writing community generally. And before that, I was head of legal at Knopf. So I've been in publishing for about 15 years on a couple of different interesting sides of what some will call the divide, but I actually think it's just great opportunities for everyone. So looking forward to Yeah, so it'll be fun hearing from John now. (laughs) We'll see if anything's different. Maybe not. Not really. Um, I do want to say a word, though. Since uh, It just reminds me, since we have, I have a board member on the panel here, you know, there's so many great literary organizations here in the Twin Cities, and it's really nice to see that so many board members of those orgs have come along here, too. So that's bravo, board members. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just continue moving along. Dina. Oh, boy. <laughs> My name is Dina Drewis, and I'm the editor and founder of Novella. It's an independent press dedicated to novellas. We've helped launch the careers of writers like Emma Straub, Eden Lepucky, and Daniel Torday, who all had very, very successful novels come out after publishing their novellas with Novella. And we are based in Los Angeles. Uh, my name is Kevin Nguyen. I'm the editorial director of Oyster, uh, which is a streaming service for books. Um, and I also edit the Oyster Review, which is our literary magazine. Thank you. And Fiona. That's my name. <laughs> Fiona McRae, the publisher and director of Grey Wolf Press. We publish about 30, 32 books a year of uh, fiction, 
creative nonfiction and poetry. We just published Citizen by um, Claudia Rankin and Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson and On Immunity by Eula Biss that have been doing well, and we're based here in Minneapolis. And I should also add, because I don't think Fiona would say this herself, but Fiona and Grey Wolf were awarded at our annual gala the first ever prize for exceptional acts of literary publishing. There's an official name for it. I've forgotten it, but that's what it was for. The Golden Colophon. The Golden Colophon, of course. <laughs> How could I forget? The Golden Colophon, yeah, which is now gracing a space here in Minneapolis somewhere. Okay, thank you all for being here. I'm just curious, who in the audience is a publisher or editor? Cool. Who was, I, I know the answer to this one. Who's a writer? <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> who was here purely as a reader? Yay! Yay. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, so um, there's a lot going on. You know, we had in the past few years a rapid period of change in publishing, particularly related to digital things. Now, I think when we talk about marketing in publishing, we probably begin by assuming we're talking about entirely or certainly including uh, social media, something that didn't exist not that long ago at all. When we talk about publishing, we can't assume that it means something physical or something digital. It might mean both. It might mean either one. A lot has changed. That rate of change, uh, we can all talk about this and argue about it, but that rate of change perhaps has slowed down a little bit. And what's really cool about that is that I think there was assumptions before that new things were replacing old things. And uh, to put it in the most general way so we can get the panel in talking about it, what in fact has happened, I'm sure everyone will agree, is that we've added new things to old things so that now we have more ways to make things public, which is what publishing means, and more ways to engage and create connections between authors and writers. I think a lot of the, the new uh, trends right now have to do with reaching readers directly, so we'll chat about that, and um, other new ways for uh, publishers and the authors that they publish to engage with those readers in ways that were really not possible before or certainly didn't happen so frequently and certainly not in, in larger conglomerate publishing. So in no particular order, why don't I, I'll just start with you, Nathan, <laughs> since we started with you before. I'm going to ask you a question to talk about how things started, but then also what's happening now with, with your change, which is interesting in regard to what I just said, because if I'm not wrong, Restless was founded as a digital-only publisher, and right. now I believe you're calling yourself a digital-first publisher because you have now entered into the realm of print books, the, the newfangled realm of codexes. And so what I'm curious about is what led to that decision, and then also, I'll let you do a little pitch. So you have a, a particularly wonderful novel out right now in, in print and digital. And if you have even data yet, because it's, it's not out all that long, but I'm curious to hear how the print We're sales and the digital sales. Fantastic. So maybe, given if, if you don't mind sharing some numbers, how the digital sales and the print sales might be comparing and what that means for your whole business model, which was started as a digital-only publisher. Uh, it's been really interesting. We've actually added old things to new things we're innovating by going old school. Restless started, as Jeffrey said, as ebooks only. And what became clear over the course of trying really hard, not very successfully, to sell these ebooks was that we were limiting our audience, the people who love the sort of books we publish, which is which are works of art, works in translation, you know, are book lovers, and they like to hold the book. They discover a book in bookstores. Even among those readers who are ebook readers, often they are reading reviews. Ebooks do not get reviewed. 
In fact, the only digital exclusive that the New York Times has ever reviewed was Karen Russell's novella, uh, Sleep Donation, um, which is a great book. And we just found that we weren't able to reach our audience because they weren't discovering the book in reviews, they weren't discovering the book in bookstores, and it really limited word of mouth. We threw really fun events with incredible authors, and there was nothing to sell. Because an ebook, it, there's nothing there <laughs> in a way. So we still have ebook readers to answer that part of the question, but you know, they're a, I guess they're a subset of the print readership. What was interesting when Restless started, it was right when Atavis Books was going, right when Byliner was big, and both of those two shops have shuttered. I think if Restless had not gone into print, we would have gone the same way. So I'm going to ask, open the question up to everyone now before I ask more pointed direct questions to everyone because right here is a really interesting question that might be one of timing, which is to say it wasn't that long ago that we talked about paperbacks not getting reviewed and the importance of having things in hardcover and there being paperback publishers who then started doing hardcovers, yeah. sort, of, sort of going backwards in a, in a sense just to appear on certain radar. And now we're talking about digital-only publishers moving into print for various reasons, one of them being to exist in a certain sense. So I'm just curious, to, if other folks have an opinion, do we think that it's just too early and that there'll be uh, many, many more and, or many digital-only publishers going forward? Or do you think that um, this does suggest that objects have a value that will never go away and you know, things may go that direction, or both? Anybody? I think, I think in, in general that everybody is finding that the physical component has a role. Even where people are buying their books on the internet, they're seeing them physically first. And I, I was thinking when you said that about the books weren't there when Nathan said that, that if you bought a record or a CD or a podcast or whatever, you never expected to have the orchestra in your room. So you're, you're already buying a substitute so you're buying a substitute for the substitute. But the, the, there's something very primary, I think, around a book. So I think e even if the reviews come in, you're still stuck with the discoverability in the bookstore factor. So I think it's, it's hard to en envision a world where the physical doesn't play some role in some way. Agreed. Yeah, I, you know, I keep, I've always been asked over the years, I remember, when will print die? Uh, I remember getting this question five years ago in Frankfurt and, and feeling very strongly um, that uh, it won't ever die. And, and in fact, I don't, I guess I don't think about it as print versus digital. Um, you have a story to tell if you're a writer or if you're a publisher, you, you have a bunch of stories to tell. And you're, you want those stories to find their audiences. As technology has reduced some of the costs involved in these various ways of delivering content, whether it's digital or short-run printing, or, you know, audio, which now is, is, is really growing, I think, maybe less so on the literary side, but in general we're seeing a real growth. As these tools become sort of democratized, really the goal in my mind is I want this story to be in whatever form any audience member might like. I mean, sort of an aspirational goal. Every book, oh gosh, I'm going to do the Amazon spiel. Every book <laughs> in every format, in every language, available really easily. And that is the best way, I think, to build this sort of relationship with the reader because you are serving the reader. The reader saying, hey, I want to listen to this this way or read it this way. 
and the technology has enabled that, I think, in many ways. I, I, I'm not saying it's easy. But. And one thing that certainly we might talk about a bit as well is cross-platform reading. I'm just curious from the audience, who here reads the same book in more than one <laughs> format? Yeah, a lot. Me, t me too. Um, I routinely buy a print book and download the ebook, and then also read bits of it on my phone when I'm in lines. I, I'm and the audiobook, you know, now, frankly, you can switch back and forth. It's awesome uh, and not lose your place between audio and print. So to move maybe entirely tech, digital tech into tech. something a little different, back, back to the digital realm a bit. But um, So, Kevin, you're not a, a publisher per se. Oyster is a, well, you are as far as the editorial part. Right. But, but in general, the primary activity of Oyster is a conduit. So let me just tell folks about it a little bit and maybe if you can give us some idea of numbers and... Um, yeah, so I guess uh, usually the shorthand people say about um, Oyster is that it's the Netflix for books. I kind of think that Netflix is like the Oyster for movies. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's so we're digital only, um, and we're platform. And, you know, sometimes people tell me, like, well, I only read in print. Like, why should I sign up for Oyster? And I'm just like, you shouldn't. It's just not for you. And it doesn't have to be for everyone. And I just sort of think, I'm not sure why the conversation is always around this, especially, like, the idea that print will die out or digital take over or if digital is a trend, like, I don't know why these two things can't coexist. I think we're actually seeing them coexist pretty well in the past year, especially. So what was your question? <laughs> and well, if I could, I'm, just, I'm going to ask a couple more questions yeah. that other folks may have, but I have. So obviously you're providing access. To, there, there are you know, all kinds of rights issues. So are you um, getting those rights to provide access to the digital books publisher by publisher or is it by distributor? From? It depends. In a lot of cases, it's by publisher, um, and when we can, it's by distributor. Um, that's a really great way to sign up a lot of independent publishers, um, which is very important to us. I do think there's often this misconception. I do like when people say, like, the Netflix of books instead of the Spotify for books, because just the way our model works in terms of payment is very different from Spotify. The way Spotify does it is you pay $10 a month. You know, they apportion off this certain amount of that, and that gets evenly distributed across artists, and that's why artists are really getting cut out of Spotify. With us, every time you read past a certain part of a book, um, it triggers a sale. So it's just like you sold, as a publisher, it's just like you sold that book on Amazon. And so I think that's a really great model because it works very well for publishers, it works very well for authors, and for readers, we've kind of eliminated this friction. Um, you can read as many books as you want in a month. You can read none if you want. And it's kind of all the same to us. And do you uh, define digitally reading a book as clicking on it, or does one have to consume some um, portion of it? It actually depends on, um, you know, on the deal we have with each specific publisher, but it's not very much of the book. So it's a little bit more than opening the book. It's like way before finishing the book. Okay. So it is much like buying a physical book. One yes. presumably reads a bit of it, but they may or may not finish the whole book having bought it. Yeah, and you kind of don't have later. that. Uh, I think one nice thing, so I think what we like to do is, you know, there will always be advantages to a physical object, Fiona said, um, but there are also advantages to a digital object. And, you know, in a way, like, I think we can all relate to this, that to-be-read pile just, like, it piles up on your nightstand and it just, like, stares at you guiltily before you go to sleep. Uh, <laughs> and when it's all on your phone um, and you don't sort of have this, like, in your head, you're not opening a book on Oyster and thinking, like, ah, oh, I paid, you know, like, X amount of dollars for this book. I really need to finish it. It never feels like homework. So in a way, like, that's sort of the reading experience we want to go to. We want it to be really easy for people to find great books, also to put them down and put, pick up something new um, if they want to as well. Yeah, yeah it seems Ma like a great way to introduce new authors to spur sampling and experimentation. Yeah, I'm curious if, there, I don't know if there, there may not be any data, but if there is, any data on people using Oyster in a way that some people use independent booksellers, which is to sample things and then sometimes buy them elsewhere. So do you find that people maybe 
reading lots, just little bits of lots of things, and then if you, you know or don't, actually, going off and buying a physical copy or um, not. There's a stat we throw around a lot um, that I really like. It's like usually people start about five books before they commit to one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's kind of a great experience, especially if you're the kind of reader that really wants to sample. And so that, like, that's a statistic we're really proud of. And we also, the difference between, like, say, us and you know, some of our competitors is that everything in our app is like, very strongly editorially curated. And I think that's really important. And in a way, you know, we don't do things like co-op. Publishers can't pay us for marketing. So every book really stands on its own and just in terms of quality. I mean, that's a big challenge for independent publishers. You know, you just can't afford that placement on the, you know, the front table at Barnes & Noble. On Oyster, you know, like, your books have equal shot being featured. And I just think when people see certain books and they start certain books, you know, and they like them, they finish them. I think it's really exciting. Great, thanks. And well, I think we'll move into the, the general giant topic of discovery in a bit. But I want to bring Dina in because you are a novella publisher, so here's another something very new, doing something very old kind of publishing, but it's newfangled in a way. So let me just talk about how it came about and what it means to be a, a novella publisher. Well, it came about, we've been around, it'll be four years in May. I had been working for Flatman Cricket, which was like a sort of indie literary magazine in Sacramento, and we decided we wanted to do single author titles, but we didn't want to compete on the level of the novel, so we thought, you know, why don't we do novellas? It's a great format for discovering emerging writers because you get to spend a little more time with them than in a short story, and it's not quite the investment of a novel. So it turned out really well. We did a couple before Flatman Crooked folded, and then I decided I wanted to stick with it. But I just have always thought it's sort of a funny thing that novellas and short story collections, too, have always just been like... No, we don't do it. No editors want them because they're hard to sell, but I I just have always felt that that's sort of a weird thing that's just sort of, you know, carried on through the years and just everyone believes it without there really being a reason to. Because literary fiction is already a niche market. You can, uh, I think readers desire above all curation and they want to find editors and publishers that they like and trust. And with the right, you know, passion behind it, you can sell almost, you know, a work of any length, really. I don't think that these parameters are necessarily, like the, you know, novellas don't sell is necessarily a real thing. I mean, you look at Of Mice and Men and The Pearl and, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's, there's just so many examples throughout history that just it doesn't make sense to think that novellas don't sell or no one wants to read and them. It's, it's nice for someone to read a, a novella and not feel like they've bought a novel and been cheated. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's um, the thing is like the novellas are almost always exactly as long as they should be because no one in their right mind sits down the right one. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, uh, just to stay with you for a moment because you have a kind of a cool thing you've done I think would be great for people to hear about which is sell shares. Yeah. So um, the idea novella started as really a platform to highlight emerging authors and to serve as a stepping stone between them being you know relatively unknown. They publish the novella, and then the novella helps them sell novels, which has really, really worked. So for launch week, uh, the day the book comes out, for a week we sell shares that you can buy to like invest in the author's career, and it's 20 to $25. You get a signed copy of the book, and they handwrite you a thank you note, and you get a copy of an ebook, which actually, just to bring it back to what we were talking about just a second ago, we, we gave the option, so you can buy an ebook for you know, your Kindle or your iPad or your Nook, or you can choose to not take an ebook, and about half the buyers opted to not take an ebook file, even though it was free. So it's just interesting. Um, I mean, that all sort of plays in. But yeah, the idea is that you invest at this very early level, and you have this um, you know, small, well-designed 
book that is going to be this marker of like a very early point in the author's career, and then they go on to, for Eden, for example, she hit number three on the New York Times bestsellers list this year with her novel California, which is just, I mean, it's very cool for the people that had the novella way back when, five years ago. Yeah. I, I love this idea of um, investing as a, as, a, as a reader, as a consumer. There's a, I think you did that, right? Didn't cities. you have, I mean, wasn't that a model that you yeah. developed? Well, no, actually, I'm going to give credit to something else that uh, maybe we stole it from. Um, (laughs) There's an organization, I I think they're here in the Twin Cities. Someone can yell I'm right or wrong. Uh, Springboard for the Arts, they're here, right? Yeah, and they're great. Okay. They do something, they do a CSA, which for many of us means community shared agriculture. You buy a farm share? I have one. They're great. (laughs) They do a CSA, community shared art, where individuals can buy a share as if you were getting vegetables for the summer, but they commission a bunch of artists to make art. May or may not happen, like a farm may or may not produce vegetables, depending on the weather. And um, everyone investing a share shows up at the end at a kind of farm stand uh, with, with vegetables, too. They're farmers and the artist, and they pick up their share of their box of art at the end, whatever was produced. But I think people love this idea of participating as a community in, in a group investment. So that's a really nice model. Thanks for sharing that. Fiona, let me, let me uh, throw a question to you. You're primarily a print publisher. You also do produce ebooks, And you might, just for factoid's sake, um, after I actually ask my question, uh, just give us an idea of sort of what percentage of your sales roughly, roughly are e-reading. As a publisher founded as a, what we might call traditional small press literary publisher, given what's happened digitally these days, uh, and it, it might just be in the realm of marketing or events even, what do you feel that you're doing differently now that you did, say, 10 years ago that really has changed, even though... Overall, you may still feel like you're doing things in a traditional way, if there is something. Yeah. I think we feel that we're in a, um, a yes-and or both-and situation. I think, I was looking at Leslie there, our numbers queen, that our e-book sales are sort of between 10 and 15%. And we're finding, on the whole, that books that sell well, physical books that sell well, have high e-book sales, so books that do well do so well. Do well. Right. I'm going to ask is, you a, a question that, um, just for the folks who may not know this, because I, I think it'll be true in the way that it is true for most others. Do any of your ebook sales, are any of them larger than the parallel not, print book? Not yet. And there's surprises. Like, we did a book called Geek Sublime, which was by the novelist Vikram Chandra, about his career as a coder, doing computer programming and so on. And that has had very low ebook sales. And we thought that the, you know, Silicon Valley, all these sort of, I think we could still imagine that there are sort of e-people out there just, you know, being all geeky and living on the, yeah. in the internet. Listen, romance is still probably the best-selling ebook yeah, genre. Yeah. And if you had told me that when we launched Kindle nine years ago, yeah. I would have been shocked. Yeah. But and it's it, the style of reading that yeah. really makes the difference. That yeah. is it. And, and, some, al- and also, maybe, do you think that those folks needed a vacation from tech? Well, maybe. That's yeah. right. And um, when going around sometimes into colleges and what have you, a lot of the young people say that they prefer print. And it's some of the, some older people I'm talking to where their bookshelves are sagging, and they're like, yeah. give it to me on the Kindle. It's sort of one of our most enthusiastic Kindle readers is our 80-plus old board member who loves it. She doesn't want to sit in bed with a great big heavy book. Anyhow, then in terms of 10 years ago, definitely it's changed. 
in terms of marketing the social media and catering to the website and all those kinds of things. And um, we've been saying that board members are here. And when I was new at Grey Wolf, the board used to tell me, ask me who the audience was for Grey Wolf Books. And I would say, well, we don't really know, but you, you sometimes see them at AWP. <laughs> but other, other than that, we didn't have much to go on. Right. But now we've got, you know, um, I think it's o over 250,000 Twitter followers. We've got thousands of Facebook friends. And they, they, they can give us feedback. And you can also sort of track the industry. The publicist sends out a physical galley to somebody who reviews in a physical review, and they tweet about it. Mm -hmm. Just got empathy exams, and then they or just got Argonauts, and they could see something building. And I think in a sort of interesting way, the, the younger generation are getting to know each other in a way that they couldn't when they were based in Minneapolis before. And the first time I went to uh, BEA with my young publicist, expecting that I would be introducing her to people in the industry, people kept coming up to her on her first BEA, flinging their arms around her. And then they would, would chat on for five minutes, and they knew each other online. So that's just this interesting upside that's the sort of, it's, it's the wake. It's not yeah. designed for that. But, and I just, I just think it's the, the way that in which print and social media or whatever go together. So I remember in the past when I, so I came from England, uh, British publishing to American publishing. And in England, you could sort of generate a bestseller in three days because something would be covered in the Sunday Times, the Guardian, the this and the that. And one household would read all those things. And I would come here and I'd be like, oh, great, the Chicago Tribune doesn't go beyond Chicago. Whereas now you can get that and you, you can have this second life going. I mean, not that everybody's lining up for Grey Wolf reviews, but it, you just have a f sense that you can get more mileage out of something that's happened in one place, so the way that it's breaking out. Right, geography. so not only this idea of viral, but I think you spoke to something that really is very, very new, that for the, really the first time, other than a few in-person events, publishers can actually really know who their readers are, yeah. that as much as you're putting information out there through social media, you're getting information back. There's a lot of ready-for-the-picking free data available to you to actually know what kind of folks are responding to your books who may not always be the folks that you thought you were publishing to I, I and communicating say, with each other. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I, I think however much more information publishers have today, they still don't have a lot of the information they want. No. Um, I think that's, uh, that's one thing I've heard many times over the years. Because <laughs> somebody said recently on one, one of these conferences about digital stuff that just because you already bought a book in a certain doesn't actually mean you will again. Right. So that, you know... Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. But in terms of just being able to, I mean, know that this person loves this author, you don't necessarily know that if they buy it at a store or... No. Right. no. That's still a challenge. Yeah. And also the, the reason why someone reads a book cannot simply be known by the fact that they purchased it. Right. <laughs> or vice versa, the fact that they purchased it doesn't mean they've read it. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Um, there is, I, think there, you, I think there really is a community out there now, and you, you can have a, a feeling of community that wasn't there before. That's but really I what, like what's new. I like as an older person, and I really see the younger people thriving in that. Uh, but there have been some interesting bounces back and forth. I, can, I, you know, I have another, had I, I run small press distribution, which is the one remaining 
nonprofit literary book distributor in the country. We only right now, we had entered the ebook market, we got out of it. We probably will go back in at some point, but we only distribute print um, entirely. And our sales were up 23% last year, which is crazy. It suggests that for certain kinds of books, and these are, let's call them high <laughs> literary books, you know, poetry, very, you know, very literary uh, books, uh, cultural studies, work in translation, there seems to be uh, this tremendous interest in reading, holding objects. By the same time, we have crazy growth in some areas in digital books. And as you said, there were assumptions about, say, romance readers being, we might assume that they would not be so newfangled. Well, it was just right when you it. think about it, yeah. it makes perfect sense in, in hindsight, like so many things. The type of person who reads romances is a rabid, voracious reader, sci-fi, mysteries as well, lots of series. They finish a book at 11 p.m., and they want to start a new one immediately. And, and digi you know, digital delivery makes that very easy. I, I do think literary fiction and nonfiction readers have a different relationship to the way in which they read, and I think that's reflected in the way they buy. I do want to comment and pick up on something Fiona said. If you don't, I, I have gotten to travel everywhere around the world speaking to authors over the last six or seven years, and I really want to underscore this sense of community, this sense of optimism that I think is engaging authors, in particular storytellers, in particular everywhere I go. There are plenty of challenges, obviously, but this sense of opportunity, and, and by the way, with the opportunity comes an incredible amount of work and effort. It's not easy, but there's this sense of opportunity, this sense of I can do this, and there are people who are helping me, who at conferences like this, I mean, most of the time, speaking for Amazon, I'd be surrounded by people after a a session and be like, how do I do this? How do I do that? There is no better person to tell you that than the person sitting next to you who probably just did it. And that sense of community has really grown. So it, it's, it's sort of an interesting, almost, not oxymoronic, but contrarian, that as technology has grown, this sense of community that is not just technologically driven but very personally driven has grown. Um, and, and it sort of, uh, it, it also reflects, I think, the more technology comes into this space, which to me is just about enabling storytellers. That's the great thing about technology, at least what we've done so far. The more you need the human, I, I want to use the word curation, but I want to use it in a very expansive discoverability, text curation as, opposed to, a, a, as well as mapping, all kinds of ways of finding things. Uh, uh, Richard Nash has some very interesting ideas about this. If you see him around, over the weekend, talk to him, and then ask somebody to explain what he just said. That's what I always have to do. They're very interesting ideas, and to me, that's the next great opportunity. And that sense of opportunity, it's not a challenge anymore. No. I'm feeling, I, and I'm not a publisher, um, but I'm feeling this sense, wow, this stuff is enabling things, whatever they might be. And there, there, is, a, you know, it, there is a story that has a double edge, and the double edge is opportunity and challenge between what I think is fair to call a, a slow motion art form. You know, reading literature, it's probably closer to weaving than, you know, breakdancing. And yet we have all this technology that allows things to happen instantaneously. So there's an interesting, there's both opportunities and challenges between something very slow and something very fast. Well, and how do they work together? Well, and the whole market reflects that. I mean, the great thing about Amazon, frankly, I think, just talking to smaller publishers, is now your books are reaching many, many more people than you've ever reached before, ever could reach before. The downside is this incredible dependency that has built up uh, in terms of Amazon as, as uh, a place where books are sold. And so the, uh, another example of the, the double-edged sword. 
I easily have a million more questions, but I think I'd like to open it up to the audience so we can have other conversations going. Who has a question? Let's, let's go way, way up there. And I'm try to shout it out and I'll repeat it. Yes, Red. We have a, a general question about uh, if anyone has been moving into the area of multimedia, whether that be, I guess, enhanced ebooks or combinations of moving image and text. I worked at Brilliance Audio a few years back when Amazon uh, took them on, and we started to look at ways to bring, uh, you know, the full multimedia package, and and we did some interesting experiments. What I found mostly. And this is nothing new, right? Think about Voyager CD-ROMs back in the 90s, uh, which didn't really find an audience. I, I think that's the key thing. Multimedia, for the sake of multimedia, is not going to be effective. You have to figure out a way to integrate it. And that really goes back to how do you, as an author, and I hate, I, I'm not an author, so I, I'm not really qualified to, to say this, but in my mind, when I think about this, some people start, okay, I'm going to write this book. Other people, uh, I want to share this story. And starting from that point, I think, will more naturally bring in these elements. Anyone else? John uh, brought up, well, sorry, uh, Karen Russell's sleep donation, which Atavis Books put out. I think it's been a, about a year now, but it was just an ebook. But they built this beautiful website platform that was really interactive. That's been one of the best, I think, most successful examples I've seen where they're incorporating sort of multimedia aspects. I think it's still up if you want to check it out, but they did a really wonderful job. It was an ebook only release of a novella. And, um, you know, that was sort of how they interpreted selling that form, which uh, it was, it's really well done. If you The other way to think about it is um, some folks take different parts of their stories and tell them in different media. There's a great program at Wofford University every summer called Shared Worlds, which brings high school students together with fiction, mainly fantasy and sci-fi, and they're not writing books. They're, what they're doing, actually, is creating the worlds in which those books or movies or video games will function. It's really, it's really cool to see this stuff developing. And I think we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm with John that I think a lot of it has to do with, is it driven by an author creating a work in multimedia, for multimedia, or is it that multimedia is being used as a, essentially a marketing tool or another way to have access to a book? Those are very different things. It's something that we ask ourselves at Grey Wolf all the time, like, where is this going um, in an editorial way? And we would like to be able to fund that or publish that or something, but so far we haven't. But we, we've had a couple of projects like Ander Monson, who, who had something which lived right. on his um, computer, and you could go and experience the book in, in a different way, and then that something was sub-licensed from... Adderall Diaries, but then we've got things like um, Mark Doton's Infernal, which is very... <laughs> he knows him. It's very, it's very wordy, it's very physical, but it, it, it's uh, reflective, it's got kind of gobbledygook computer language, and it it's, it's, um, could only be written in the digital age. And then I, I think and it, it's got sort of bells and whistles in, in type format, and then I, I think an, another thing that we're seeing, which I think is tied to the digital wave, is that our books are getting more physical, that the authors are wanting more pictures and this kind of thing. Because I think 
that they, they want the existence of the physical thing to be different from if it was just digital. We had a question right in here. That's a great question. I want to repeat the question. That's a really important one, and I think where there are definitely some changes now. We've talked a bit about ebook percentages compared to print, but speaking just of print books right now, have you noticed changes or just talk about, even with the, with the new one, through what venues those books are reaching readers? Whether it's directly from your website, is it more events, is it through online booksellers, is it more through indie booksellers, is it through other kinds of sellers, you know, museum gift shops, anything else, uh, carts? book buses, anything else that's possible. What's really interesting and kind of strange to me as we move into print is how it seems like there are more opportunities for us to connect directly with individual people than at a bigger place. I, my first job in publishing was at Little Brown and & Company, and you know there was a separate marketing department who did a brilliant job at a very high level, but because that level was so high, they weren't necessarily... You know, nobody from Little Brown was in a bookstore talking to a bookseller. It was sales reps who did an amazing job at that. And um, my mentor in this arena is a guy named Jeff Waxman, who is who started out as the uh, marketing director of Other Press, and he has sort of decided to change his job to bookstore liaison. And he just he spends most of his time on the road talking to booksellers and. It's amazing the difference when, you know, someone in a bookstore whose job it is to sell books, if they've had a conversation with someone about a book, you know, they're more likely to pass that conversation on. That's one of the great things about reading is how community-based it is in that way. Um, in terms of venues where we sell, it's interesting. So our first book is a autobiographical novel by the film director Alejandro Hodorowski. And the very first bookstore that ordered it is this bookstore in Brooklyn called Catland, which is Brooklyn's premier metaphysical bookshop. So you can go there and you can buy books of spells and our first uh, print book. So it's been, it's been kind of cool to find those. As, as everybody's been talking about, there's a real sense of community, but for us especially, um, when we're doing books in translation, we do want to reach kind of that big community of readers, but there are always smaller communities to tap into. Our next books are going to be Cuban science fiction, so now we have to go find the people who are going to be into that. Latino unicorn stores. Yes, exactly. Anyone has any tips, let me know. (laughs) I've I've been known to say that um, reading is a group activity accomplished one person at a time, but um, a lot of the new ways that we're reaching readers is creating lots of little groups of people who can interact, sometimes actually really. There's a a weekly event in Seattle at the Sorrento Hotel, a monthly event that people just sit and read in uh, in the hotel lobby or in the hotel bar. I should have have led with the Manhattan point. Actually, reading together is a trend that I've been noticing at a number of events, people reading quietly in a shared space which is a powerful, wonderful thing. Much like seeing a movie with a group of people is different than watching a movie on your phone, right? Or if it is for you. <laughs> Does anyone still go to see movies anymore? Any more comments on 
how people are reaching books? Um, one, one thing, especially I think as an independent publisher, developing relationships with the booksellers at independent bookstores is, I think, one of the most valuable things you can do because they, you know, be, you become mutual fans. You know, obviously, as a publisher, you admire independent bookstores so much. But, you know, when a bookstore staff member picks a title for a staff pick, that's like a huge, you know, a huge thing for a book because they're physically selling the customers and talking to the customers over and over again how much they like something. And it's, it does wonders just for uh, getting the word out there. And, and it, again, goes back to this idea of community and, and uh, just sort of this mutual appreci- appreciation of the whole ecosystem. But, yeah, if, if there are publishers out there, um, talk to your local booksellers because they're going to be your best friends. I have to say, I, increasingly, I find myself having conversations with people about books where we talk about them as intimate objects and what it means to share a book. But there's something very personal about it, and, and there's great power in, in sharing a book with someone else. So we have another question. Yeah. I just have to have more information about how you develop these relationships. So the question is, how, how does a publisher go about developing relationships with an independent bookseller? Anyone want to comment on that? Just physically go into the store <laughs> and talk to them and, it's you know, ask... Scalable, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same as developing relationships with, with any other human being. Right. Go talk to them. Right. Yeah. No, it's actually, it's an excellent question. Because when you move beyond the very local, how do you do it, really, is your question. Our uh, independent bookseller sales has gone up to about 13%. That's not counting. They reorder through Ingram. So the majority of our sales are to the chains, but um, the independent, um, that, that statistic is higher than it's been in some years. It was, it was as low as nine, probably 10 years ago. And um, they, they're learning how to... Um, survive alongside and there's been a new thing created called Winter Institute which um, is a gathering of independent booksellers every January and you pay X amount and you can go in at various levels according to how much you've paid and you pitch your books to the independent sellers. Through, through the American Booksellers Association. Yeah, it's, it's a... It's like speed dating. There's, yeah, there's something yeah. called the American Book... Uh, there's BEA, Book something, Book Expo Ex- America which recently, for many years, for about six years in a row, has been in New York, and then many, many booksellers come, and you can meet them that way. And then there's this kind of splinter group just for the independents. So if you can't get around all of them, and then, again, you can use the Internet to be in touch. And um, there's various things like IndieBound and um, IndieNext and various promotions. that that There's ways to um, be in touch without spending your whole time in an airplane or a car, but obviously in person is best. How do distributors help? Who is distributing your books, and are they playing that kind of role? Yeah, then we're distributed by FSG, which is owned by Macmillan, so as as Nathan was saying, the the reps go in for you as well, so they're your first point of contact with the books, and, and also with... You know, for us, it's Macmillan FSG that deals with Amazon. It, that is a, a primary job of a distributor, which includes selling to Amazon as well. And um, you know, they're getting it out to resellers, essentially. But on a more grassroots level, for, uh, don't forget that you have authors who probably live in other places, and you know, they should be making a relationship when they have a book out with you with their local bookstore, who will probably welcome them quite a bit. And um, I think, like all human relationships, you build them one person at a time. A, a group email is not the way to do it. It's 
Like, sort of like the way to do all million little things. It's one at a time. It's sort of interesting. I mean, the technology really has made it possible for people to reach people in ways they couldn't. I mean, just think about publishing a book about crocheting 15 years ago and trying to find an audience on your own. And now you really can. Now the tools are there. And, and you know, it's sort of it's unfortunate. But the business of writing, the business of being an author to this point, uh, with all of this opportunity, it also requires authors doing a lot more than perhaps they've been accustomed to doing in the past. Some are better suited than others. Um, it's really interesting again to see how the proliferation of tools has only created, like in many parts of our lives, only more, only created more work. I, I want to add one more just little tip because it's one that a lot of our simply publishers know, but in, in case you don't, um, if you're a publisher and if you're an author, this is something you should know about too if you have a book coming out. Um, part of the publication process is getting blurbs for the back of the book. Um, indie booksellers are great folks to blurb books, not just other authors. And so it's possible to send out advanced copies to independent booksellers asking for their feedback. And if it's really good, ask if you can use it. It's mutually beneficial. I'm going to ask a question of anyone. Oh, yes. Where was the question? Yeah. So this is a little off topic, but that's okay. Uh, the question is, if you're an author submitting manuscripts for publication and you already know of people who might blurb your book or write an introduction, is that something you should submit along with it? I think the answer is yes. That's something to discuss with your agent or if you're, even if you're doing it individually. It's one more value to add to the package that you can um, send. So sure, that would be great. There's no reason to keep Don't hold that back. Don't keep that a secret. You tell everyone. Yes. Right, so the question, I, I hope I get this right, is maybe, maybe just comments on what seems to be a trend, which is uh, folks other than traditional publishers. Right, that we have, that, that there is literature not coming out of other kinds of publishers or businesses that are not themselves necessarily traditional small press literary publishers. Um, I think the conversation around, let's call it high literature, um, is changing um, in a way that I find very exciting, especially um, with the move online. There are fewer pages in major outlets dedicated to book reviewing and book criticism, but there are an infinite number of pages on the internet, which again is good and bad. But I think uh, sort of in the past five years, you've seen this sort of proliferation of a new type of sort of book writing and it's sort of relating it to the personal essay. And I think this is very powerful. Personal essays have been around forever. But now they're, you know, part of a book conversation. And I think that's very powerful because you're not just talking about a book. You're talking about your relationship to a book. And I think this type of writing is becoming very popular. And I think, you know, a lot of the reviews for, say, the empathy exams or a citizen definitely reflected that. And I think that's a very exciting thing. It's something that we're really interested in at the Oyster Review. And I kind of, when it started coming out, you know, there were sites like The Millions doing this. You know, this is kind of a niche thing, but, you know, Sort of like whenever you discover something for the first time on the internet, it, it feels like it's like tailor-made for you. And then like a little bit later, you realize, oh, there are a lot of people like me that like this thing. And that's a great feeling. And I think it's, that's kind of a direction that things have been moving. The comment was, it's, is, it, is it an Oyster's business model to publish... That oh, sort of I thing, think, I'm not oh, sure so what I mean, sort of is. The interesting thing about being a subscription service um, is that our job is to create a relationship with our readers. So we do publish a lot of essays about books because we want to get people excited about books and thinking about books all the time and thinking about how they relate into their lives. Um, in a way, we're constantly you know, justifying the uh, $9.95 you spend a month on Oyster. So we want you to keep 
having that conversation, whether it's, you know, with an essay, with your friends, with Twitter. Just to bring up something that maybe none of us saw two years ago, but BuzzFeed is launching a literary vertical, and they have had such, they've done such an incredible job with BuzzFeed books in this last year. And uh, I think that's one of the things that you're sort of pointing out, which is um, this entity, that, which has this, you know, enormous platform that's really taking literature seriously, and they're going to develop a literary community on their own. Not on their own, but, you know, there's talk of doing salons in New York for BuzzFeed, which, you know, five years ago we all thought was just cat listicles. So, so th- yeah, I think that's a- there's absolutely this expansion of, like, the literary community to places none of us probably foresaw. Yeah, I think it'll continue to grow. I mean, you can point to, I think, the re- reemergence of short form on any number of levels has been... Uh, spurred by the technology, and it's very much an old thing. I mean, we launched cereals, Amazon launched cereals a couple of years ago, and I remember reading somebody saying, Jeff Bezos has done it again. He's invented a new way to tell stories, and, you know, completely ignoring the fact that the first book we published in serial form was the Pickwick Papers, which was originally published in serial form. So it's all, to me, that's really been one of the the great things. I actually, can I ask a question? Sure. Can publishers talk about pricing and what... Over the last, I mean, obviously, there's a ton of stuff around this, and Amazon has been a, a, a big part of it. But, you know, now as things are settling a little bit, I'm just wondering if people, in terms of ebook pricing versus print pricing and whether philosophies have changed. I mean, I know windowing is sort of a, an idea of the past where you would delay the ebook for a while and let the hardcover come out first. But I'm wondering about pricing and stuff like that. Yeah, I should say that just, just if everyone's not in on wh- what we're talking about here, there has been a trend in more mass-created writing of pricing that changes day-to-day in digital format and much more experimentation with pricing. I'll just say, I haven't really seen it in, let's call it high literary, to use Kevin's term, in high literary books. Prices are more or less fixed. A poetry book costs between this and that. A novel costs between this and that if it's of this many pages. But have anyone done experimentation with that, or do you think about that, or is it pretty much you price things at what it appears the market bears right now in a sort of general way? I believe we're not in, because of being in part of Macmillan, right. we're not doing it ourselves. Got but it. we have participated in some, like it's a, it's a week or a day sale. Uh-huh. So like Out Stealing Horses was massively discounted yes. and sold 4,000 copies like in a, in a day or a week or something. But was that your decision or was that something that... Well, I think it, it, was, it was offered to us as an idea from Amazon to do mm-hmm. it. We didn't, we didn't drive it ourselves. But you, you, you decided to do it. You yeah, decided yeah. to do it, yeah. And then we told Pear Patterson, he's all thrilled, you know. So it was, it was, just, an, it was just an experiment. As a distributor, like at SPD, we, we will do that. I mean, this is not new. It's just a digital. It's faster. Short-term sales, <laughs> meaning short-period deep discounts as a way to boost a bunch of sales and then other people are then buying it at the higher price because they feel they have to everyone else is reading it. Right. It's really easy to do short-term sales on Amazon and you know Amazon it takes if you want to sell start selling your ebook at 9.99 instead of 14.99, you know, it takes an hour or two for that change to be input whereas other retailers can take a few days. For really small publishers, the ebook pricing is whatever helps us sell books, well, you know? It, you know, it's funny. There are two different philosophies, right? One is try and bring in a, the highest price you can for each copy you sell, which can be useful. That's great. Another way is to think about it is audience development and the idea that if you get more people to buy more copies, you won't lose as much, but you've also created an audience for the next book. And so I think that's... 
where it, it becomes it's tricky. A really, it's a really interesting question with the kinds of books that most of the people at this at these tables are publishing. At what price point does the perceived quality right. kind of go down? You want you're you're selling a luxury object mm-hmm. at a discount price, so you can't sell it at too much of a discount. Like if we are selling, you know, a novel we're really proud of that we worked really hard on for three ninety nine, people might think, oh, that must not be very good then, you know. Right. Well, and that's the trade off. I, I mean, I do think though that if you do it for a limited amount of time, what you've done is perhaps not cannibalize the folks who would buy it anyway, and who may even feel an obligation to pay the higher price, but you will extend the audience a bit. I think think we're doing a little experimentation with that, but maybe you have more to add. Another place I think where we're seeing it is ultimately what it's coming down to is whether or not one book can sustain three formats. So sometimes we we have to sort of remember, well, the e-book is out there, so Everything we publish now, except for some of the poetry, it's simultaneously ebook and physical, for, for better or worse. So if you bring out a hardcover and then there's an ebook available and it's modest sales, can you then get a market for your paperback? You know, right. so yeah. and I think sometimes the answer is you can't sustain three and then you can have a nice feeling, well, at least it's out there in ebook. Whereas before, if you did a hardcover and it didn't take off, then you're kind of stranded. Right, right. right. There's also, you know, um, you were talking about the idea of something being very, very cheap because then people will pay a lot more for the next one. And I think that's one, often a big difference between smaller publishers and larger publishers. <laughs> there isn't necessarily a next one. Most right. of the writers are not serial writers. So what does the next one mean? Which Something. goes to the, again, different style of writing right. and reading. Um, I, I will say that just from pure data, it's, it's certainly clear, just speaking as a distributor, people are generally more willing to pay more for literary titles because they do understand that, at least for print, there are shorter print runs and they cost more. And there doesn't seem to be a big barrier against that. If it's a beautiful object, people are willing to pay even more for it. We find ourselves as a distributor not trying to convince people to experiment with discounting, but in fact generally trying to convince them to raise their prices because we feel they have devalued their objects by underpricing them. What's the sweet spot? That's the, that's the 1495 <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> How high can we go? Yeah. 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 Well, that, that's, where, that's where testing happens because yeah, there, uh, it, it depends. It depends. Um, you have to try it. Question right there. Oyster, uh, which in some ways works as a, as a distributor in a, mm-hmm. in a sense, really. You're kind but of really, a, if you think about it, um, we're like a retailer. Yeah, you're kind of a retailer. <laughs> that's, that's a better way to put it. You're working, you're utilizing different kinds of metrics, perhaps, than other kinds of booksellers in determining what works and what doesn't. So, where might you be getting those met- metrics, and what kind of metrics, what might you be using that's effective for you? Yeah, I should say that I'm on the editorial side, and there's a marketing team, and they're much better at Excel than I am. I remember comparing our budget spreadsheets, and mine is like, we spent this much on that, and it totaled to that. And theirs is like this macroed out crazy thing where they have customer acquisition cost from all the channels. So I can only speak very broadly about it, but um, we just we do very well with online marketing. And sort of the things we're measuring are um, customer acquisition and then also retention. And so retention is really um, an editorial prospect. As long as we're servicing great books and keeping people engaged, they're going to stay with us. So in a way, I'm not tied directly to any um, metric that, you know, say like, oh, we got to do this kind of book because it retains more people. But we know that the trend is going up because we are very confident in sort of our ability to show people the best book. 
It's interesting that you're both, you know, you're a, 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 an e-tailer, but you're also much like a successful literary magazine in that you have to maintain subscriber retention is something you have to think about. A bookstore has buyer retention, but it's a little different. Yeah. It's on a month-to-month payment. It's definitely, it's a really cool intersection to be at. We're also one of the few companies that's really, like, true, like, we're like a books company through and through now. Um, some of our competitors, um, they've started adding other types of services. Um, we're not really interested in that. We really think that the book market as business is a very big one. We think we can have a sustainable business for us, you know, for publishers, for authors, and definitely for readers. So. Thanks. Do we have another question? Way up there. Right, so the, the question is about feelings or comments about uh, presses having subscription models. Where they sign up for the Does whole year or Does anyone here have a subscription model? So Nouvelle, no? Um, you know, it's too bad. Is Chad's? I could, I could mention a few. Open Letter has too. one. Open, Open Letter has one. one. Archipelago uh, has, Solo one. has one. NYRB Classics has one. Copper Canyon, Orbox. And other press. Uh, Ugly Duckling Press. Stories, sorry. And other Why stories. wouldn't you if you could, I guess? Uh, it's been successful. I, I would say that it's it, it generally more successful the more focused the kind of books the press puts out are, so that someone wants all of them. You know, they're all works in translation. Yeah. They're all. Uh, I talked to format, I talked like to that. the publisher of uh, of a UK publisher of works in translation called And Other Stories. They do a subscription model, and he said that they have just a couple hundred subscribers, but it makes a huge difference to them because they can do direct sales. So they're not taking a hit on retailer discounts or distributor discounts. And Nouvella doesn't do it, but I, you know, there's Emily Books, which you pay thirteen ninety nine a month, and they give you. I mean, what you're paying for, I think, at that point, is the curation. So your subscribers are super fans. They're you know dishing out a couple hundred bucks a year to support you, and they're the, they're the ones that you know are your biggest fans, and they're the ones that are going to be talking about your books. And uh, I think it's a great model. Yeah, if you can do it. I, I don't think there's any drawback, really, for a publisher. I, I think it's a must, actually, on some level, given the, I think, the decreasing drawbacks. And here's why. I mean, we keep talking about how we've enabled all these people to tell their stories. And, you know, everyone can be a writer, which is amazing, I think, from a First Amendment legal standpoint. It's my background. Everyone can be a writer. Oh, my gosh. What the hell are we going to do with all this stuff? And, and so... That's cura- the next panel. Right. Curation, discoverability, finding things, matching people... That is really the next white space that people really have to work at. And publishers, just as an existing tool, it's just one, but they have their own brand. And they need to put it to better use. The number of people who know the publisher, the book they read, it's higher in literary, but still pretty low in many cases. And if you can strengthen that, and I think a subscription program is a great way to do that. Let me do a follow-up question there for, for anybody. This may or may not be a trend, but I, I hear small publishers talk about more, which is functioning as brands as opposed to mechanisms that put out individual books and market each book as it happens you know, to its particular audience. Any thoughts about being a brand? Can I quickly just say something yeah. from the question before? Which this bleeds over, but it's something that we've, we've gone back and forwards about at Grey Wolf, whether we should sort of in effect, set ourselves up to be a store, levels of branding ourselves, or whether we should be agnostic about where you buy. And then it's like you immediately run into the thing if you're very publicly saying buy from us, then you're very publicly competing with the independent bookstores that you're trying to cultivate. 
And I heard recently that somebody who does, does offers of subscription loses a very high percentage of their customers at the click point. So people are already registered at the big A retail internet store. And if, if you're buying at Amazon, you can buy Coffee House, Grey Wolf, Copper Canyon, or whatever. And I would like to think that there's people out there who spend their entire year reading Grey Wolf and nothing else. <laughs> but I don't think there are. And there's authors who start on our list and go on everybody else's. So that thing that we were saying before, just because you've done it once, does it mean you're going to do it again? And I thought it was interesting in a recent article about Amazon where you've got so much information about people that Amazon hasn't yet sort of fully become a publisher and publishers are struggling to become booksellers. Oh, it's fascinating. And so... But it's not new either, right? It's not I mean, new. It's Barnes not and Noble new. was a publisher. Borders was a publisher. Yeah, and it's hard you know, to be a publisher takes so much... And I think to be a really good bookstore. So there's things, I mean, this isn't a, a retail site, but like LitHub that's just being yep. born here. It's another conversation with how much effort should we put into our website? And there was one thing that we did using Ben Percy's deliciously deep voice reading something. And it got a million and one hits, and it, it was led to two book sales from our website. So it's one of those things that kind of seem perennially like a fix that when you... Oh, I wouldn't call it a fix. I, not I a think fix, it's just like, one tool. And but you could, but to make just that one, it's like, that's a huge tool to manufacture if you're going to make it really, really successful. Do you think? I, I guess I'm best, I do. I, I, I feel like Soho was able to build a subscription option yeah. on their site very easily. Yeah. And it's not moving the needle, but it's, I mean, again, yeah. Soho, they're one known up. for their mysteries, yeah. and so it's yeah. a good way yeah. for them to continue yeah. that. So I, I for us, it's like, it's hard. But again, no, that's suggesting a kind of serial reading. Yes. Again, the, the more focused, again, I think the ones who've had the most successful subscriptions, yeah. not sorry, serial, but they're very, very focused. It's all works in translation. Yeah. It's just poetry. Yeah. And, and there's a way where you sort of think, like, I was saying that, so I had this conversation with my board chair the other day, that, like, brand seems to me to say everything is going to be the same. Right. And I feel like we're oh. absolutely dedicated to everything being different. No, when I say brand, I mean... I know, I know you don't. No, but like, uh, and, and I, you know what? I hate those. I hate brand, platforms, all those words. I apologize, but no, no, it's, just the idea is it's you guys... It's a good guys, word. It has its, you, has its place. I know guys, it has its place. You guys have developed an expertise, a curation yeah. known for it, in the, in the same way the Millions has. And I feel like there isn't enough focus in a positive way. That, that's a tool that publishers are not indexing high enough on. Yeah. I think. That's my point, I guess, overall. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Let me, let me throw out a similar fact. I didn't... Kevin, you had another point on... Oh, on I was that? thinking, like, I guess brand is like a tainted word because it's a marketing yeah. word, but I think it's a good one, and it's, you know, what we're really saying when we talk about, like, the brand of a publisher is basically, like, the aesthetic sensibility yes. of Grey Wolf. Yeah. yeah. We are talking about, yeah, do people want to subscribe to one particular sensibility, or do they move between various ones? I want to ask uh, something that's kind of been hinted at, but um, Fiona, you actually just said it, I think. But um, it's something that I hear talked about a lot. Um, we've been doing all sorts of training, and there's all kinds of research and, on various and suggestions on different ways and methods of using uh, digital, different kinds of digital marketing and social media to market books. And what I hear, though, a lot about is there does seem to be a disconnect between buzz about a book online and actual sales. It seems to be a big problem. Um, everyone's becoming experts on getting everyone talking about a book, but it doesn't necessarily mean that anyone more is buying that book than would have without any of that conversation. So just comments about that. Is that true? Are you finding that? Is that a challenge? Are there, are there ways around it? How are you making connections between 
online buzz about a book and actual purchases of it. I'll talk about social media very briefly. Um, this is a warning to anybody in the room who is doing small publishing. Do not pay for likes on Facebook ever. It is it has killed our Facebook page. What it, what happens is that we set up this ad, say like restless books. Seemed like a good idea. It was really cheap. It was like a dollar or two a day. We got thirty thousand likes on our page, and but those likers are just random people in the subcontinent. And so the thing is, like when like Grey Wolf, I think has one of the best Facebook pages in publishing. And you look at analytics, and you can on your Facebook page, if you're a company, you can set up comparable pages, and you can see how many people are engaging with the posts of your competitors. And Grey Wolf always puts everyone else to shame. Um, but the thing is, like, it's not just creating interesting, engaging content. It's that Facebook has this algorithm where if you post something and not a certain number of people engage with that post in a certain amount of time, it falls away. So if you've paid for a bunch of fake likes, you're basically just shouting out into the void. That's just my short rant. <laughs> we have just two minutes left. Is there one final question? Woman in Blue, sure. Yes. Great. That's a perfect final question. I'm going to ask if we can just zip down the line, and if anyone just has one good one, even if you actually have ten, to wrap up one great example of some sort of marketing effort, be it terribly novel or just something that works, that has risen above all the rest and just been a great success. Perhaps maybe that surprised you. Or that didn't surprise you. <laughs> I just think the one thing, you, whatever we tell you today probably won't work tomorrow is the important thing. It's not very sexy, but at Grey Wolf, any time the marketing people are offered more money, they want to have more bound galleys earlier. <laughs> just to send it out and get those quotes in from booksellers and other readers. And it's, it's not a gimmick, but it, it, works, and it, it works on multiple books. Don't underestimate the power of pre-publication marketing. Yeah, um, this actually predates my time at Oyster, uh, but it's actually how I found out about Oyster. But they had, outside of BEA last year, a uh, truck, and they put all the money towards this truck instead of a booth in BEA, and it just gave out free cookies and coffee. No and I think oysters? It, no oysters, yeah. <laughs> Without I a refrigerator never truck. never eat oysters out of a truck. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, uh, but I think it was just like a great way to get like recognition out there of what Oyster was. You could just go and get free coffee. But I think that kind of stuff, um, it's all top-level marketing and instills very good will in people. I will say there are uh, quite a number of studies that I happen to have read lately. It might, this might just reveal what interests me. But in the performing arts, about the power of using food and drink toward encouraging participation. We threw... Um, Everybody at AWP knows yeah. that. <laughs> the, the best marketing thing that we've ever done was last year at the Brooklyn Book Festival having our exiled Uzbek novelist Hamid Ishmailov in conversation with Boris Fishman um, over dinner at a Russian restaurant. And Boris had the audience wrapped for three hours while they drank vodka and ate a delicious meal. And we developed a really strong audience from that experience. I think that is an excellent place to end with a toast. Thank you all for being here. See you next year. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, 
please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org. Thank you.